Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, episode 14, Emergence. I'm Brandon Seal. Contrary to popular usage, the word apocalypse doesn't actually mean an ending. In Greek, it means an unveiling, an uncovering, a revelation. And yet, have we unveiled, uncovered, or revealed the Lipan Apaches at all this season? Where are they now? We've seen how self-serving most claims of Lipan extinction have been in the historical record and how inaccurate they turned out to be. And to repeat that false claim today would actually be to give in to a particularly pernicious aspect of U.S. policy toward Native Americans. To be enrolled as a Native American in this country, you need a Certificate of Degree of Indian Blood, which requires you to prove your direct descent from an indigenous ancestor as determined by their appearance on a U.S. government role, typically taken on a reservation in the first decades or so of the 20th century. Well, what if your people never came onto the reservation? What if your people aren't federally recognized? Basically, in this country, if you can't prove that you're descended from a reduced or subjugated Indian, to misapply the old Spanish terms, then you're not an Indian. Which is absurd on its face, but it's even more absurd when you compare how hard it is to get Native American lineage acknowledged versus how easily the descendants of enslaved persons were classified as black under the infamous one-drop rules. Recall, in many states, including Texas, a single drop of black blood was enough to classify a person as black, which is almost the polar opposite of the standard for Native Americans, who apparently carry the burden of proving that their blood comes from the people that it comes from. Ironically, both the one-drop rule and the so-called blood quantum rules, as applied to Native Americans, were adopted in order to deny equal treatment to the respective groups under U.S. law, But in the case of Native Americans, the goal was to reduce their numbers and hence reduce the number of people to whom compensation or access to government programs might be owed. All of which makes it especially difficult to pull back the veil on the Lipanes. Two main groups represent the Lipan Apaches today, the Lipan Apache Tribe of Texas and the Lipan Apache Band of Texas. Two other smaller groups also advocate on behalf of the Lipanes, the Lipan Apache Nation of Texas and the Apache Council of Texas. A Facebook group helps convene descendants of the Big Water Band of the Lipanes, and Lucille Contreras's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project is doing really great work collecting data on Lipan and indigenous identity throughout the state. Go check out her website and do her survey if you can. The different groups debate amongst themselves for good reason, the pros and cons of seeking federal recognition. Collectively, they represent maybe 5,000 or so people of Lipan descent. The only formally enrolled Lipan Apaches today are the few whose ancestors happened to be on the Mescalero Reservation in New Mexico when those roles were taken, though if I understand it correctly, they technically carry a Mescalero ID card. Estimates vary, but these seem to be only about 100 people. Which is laughably low, demonstrably wrong, and wildly out of proportion to the 5,000 or so Lipanes who lived in their native ranges for centuries, or even the 1,500 or so who were still documented as living free in the last decades of the 19th century there. It's also an obvious defiance of the fact of hundreds of years of Lipan cohabitation with Tejanos. 
From its founding in 1718 until 1781, there were 129 Lipan Apaches living in and around Mission Valero alone. Dozens more were married to other Mission Indians at the 1749 Bury the Hatchet Peace Conference and others. In the words of University of Texas professor Richard Flores, quote, In San Antonio, the Indians aren't on reservations. They're on the streets and are called Mexicans, end quote which is a window into the latest alliance-making strategy that the Lipanes had up their buckskin fringe sleeves. They swore their Lipan identity to secrecy and, quote, sought refuge in a Mexican identity, end quote. Because in the early 20th century, for sure, you definitely didn't want to be Indian. Native Americans wouldn't be granted U.S. citizenship until 1924, 60 years after enslaved peoples were made citizens and four years after women's suffrage. Around that time, federal policy changed from segregating Indians onto reservations to assimilating them, aggressively. This policy of native assimilation would result in the forcible relocation of 750,000 native families, typically into urban areas to which they had no previous connection, the sterilization of something like 25% of all native women between 1970 and 1976, and the shipping off of 60,000 native children to the notorious Indian boarding schools as late as 1973. And in this, the land of religious freedom, the practice of the perhaps oldest continuously practiced religion in the world, the peyote ceremonies of northern Mexico brought to North America by the Lipan Apaches, were prohibited by federal law until the American Indian Religious Freedom Act and associated amendments were passed in 1994. And yet even today, after federal raids against Lipan ceremonies in the 2000s, because recall, they aren't officially Indians, its practice has had to continue in the shadows. This is why, in order to survive, Lipan Apaches became, quote-unquote, Mexicans. Not Mexican citizens, South Texas Mexicans in the way that that term has been used here for the last century. They took Hispanic surnames, Castro, De Leon, Flores, Solis, Gonzalez, Villarreal, Hernandez, Tellez, Garcia, Pompa, Borroso, Leal, Romero, Benego, to name a few. By doing this, they were able to continue their lifeways their migratory rhythms, their trips to the peyote gardens, and even, remarkably, their service alongside Texas Rangers. In 1895, Calixtro Castro, a child survivor of the massacre of El Remolino and the son of the old Lipan captain Juan Castro, was serving in the Texas Rangers, just like his father had, just like his grandfather, Cuelgas de Castro, had. Calixtro was a teamster, but he was serving nonetheless. Indeed, the descendants of Cuelgas de Castro played the strategy of becoming Mexican to perfection. After the massacre at El Remolino in 1873 by U.S. troops, the Castro Lipanes made what seemed like an odd choice. They returned to the U.S. They settled first near modern-day McAllen, then Beeville, and by the 1880s, they were attending trade fairs in New Braunfels. And in 1884, a Texas historian was noting their presence once again in San Antonio, and as late as 1937, they were living in so-called Indian Town, in the middle of San Antonio's west side, along the aptly named Apache Creek, which had carried their name since colonial times. Which brings up a funny point. One of the criticisms you'll hear sometimes of Native American groups today is that they're just, quote, Mexicans playing Indians, end quote. The irony is that just the opposite may be true. Texas today is probably full of a lot of Indians playing Mexicans. Though even the original criticism is pretty meaningless to me, because Sunday morning finds a lot of Anglo-Texans playing Romans and Hebrews, 
without any plausible genetic connection. But let's actually take it there and do some genetic math. According to an article published in 2014 in the magazine Science, the average genome for Hispanics in the U.S. is about 18% Native American, which is way low for Texans of Hispanic descent, but let's stay with it. If 18% of the DNA of the 39% of Texans who are classified as Hispanics is Native American, that translates into something like 7% of the total Texan gene pool being Native American, which doesn't even include the almost 1% that openly identify as Native American. But I bring that up because that number is right in line with the percentages of Texans that claim to be of Irish descent, 7%, and German descent, 9%, and barely less than the 12% of Texans that claim to be English. And yet, no one claims that the Irish, the Germans, or the English are extinct in Texas. Except that in truth, they are. Or at least, they're not any less extinct than Native Americans in Texas. Because I don't see a lot of folks on the streets these days wearing kilts or lederhosen or powdered wigs, but I do see a lot of people eating tamales, tortillas, pozole, and chiles. We also eat a lot more barbecue than boiled beef these days, thank God. And there's a direct line of descent from Paleo-Texan earth ovens to the pozos used for a good barbacoa. The rituals of South Texas womanhood, from the quinceanera to the lasos used to symbolically bind newlyweds, descend also directly from Native American rituals. And even American Sign Language traces its roots to Indian Plains Sign Language, invented by Texas natives and disseminated, like the peyote ceremony, by the Apache's extended trade networks across the continent. My favorite connection to somewhat hidden Native traditions are the tents that pop up in parks in Texas on holiday weekends. When Brackenridge Park in San Antonio fills up overnight with families barbecuing, listening to music, and enriching their kinship-based networks, you're seeing a modern mitote. A mitote being celebrated in many cases by the descendants of the very people that were celebrating them here thousands of years ago. To say nothing of the other, less obvious vestiges of native thought that had to hide themselves here in order to survive, such as perhaps raising a perfectly good elementary school because it was the site of an unspeakable tragedy. I think the most powerful indirect proof of the indigenous legacy on the modern United States is Americans' unique political ideals. It's a little comical to me the extent to which historical ideologues, past and present, bend over backwards to trace Americans' anti-authoritarian, liberty-loving ideals to a European continent that is still mostly appalled by them. There's a much more obvious source for Americans' prized individualism and reflexive resistance to authority. American-style political ideals probably owe their origin to European settlers' centuries-long experience with the, quote, absolute liberty of the savage, end quote, as early settlers called it with horror. It would explain why those ideals don't appear in the same way back in Europe, and would also explain why these classically American political sentiments are much more deeply held, if not always authentically implemented, in the old American frontier states. Those frontier states, too, were the first states to give women the franchise, to demand the direct election of senators and most other offices, and to give birth to the various American populist movements that you just don't see in other countries. And nowhere in North America was the experience with Native America more intense and more prolonged than in Texas. Texas' exceptionalism, in this sense, may itself be a legacy of the exceptional Lipan Apaches. The Texas Attorney General's office has argued that the Lipan Apaches relinquished their land and their sovereignty 
under the 1846 Treaty of Council Springs. The only problem there is that the Lipan captains didn't sign that treaty. And even if they had, the 1846 treaty and the subsequent 1850, 1851, and other treaties simply acknowledge U.S. sovereignty. They don't transfer title to land. In 1976, the U.S. Indian Claims Commission dispensed with the Lipanes' already reduced claims to the 60 million acres between San Antonio, the Hill Country, Del Rio, and Laredo by claiming that, quote, for all intents and purposes, the Lipans had ceased to exist as a tribe sometime after 1854, end quote. A claim which really didn't hold up then, and certainly doesn't hold up now. Perhaps recognizing the weakness of their argument, the Claims Commission continued with an alternative justification, that the Lipanes hadn't made a, quote, serious effort to defend or regain lost tribal lands in Texas, end quote, after 1854. Texas newspapers, who were still claiming hundreds of murders per year by the Apaches in those years, certainly didn't feel like the Lipanes had ceased to try to, quote, defend and regain, end quote, their lands during this period. And it's a little hard to explain the transfer of something like half of the fighting men of the U.S. Army to Apache, Texas, if not for the fact that the Lipanes were pretty clearly continuing to claim a right to exist on those lands. By 1976, however, the Indian Claims Commission was 30 years into its existence and about to be disbanded. They were at the take-it-or-leave-it phase of the game. And so in the end, the Claims Commission reduced the Lipanes' claim to an undefined 10 million acre swath somewhere south of San Antonio and paid them an arbitrary $1 an acre on it. They found 61 Lipan Apaches, supposedly, to accept the settlement, but all of them were actually residents of the Mescalero Reservation, carrying Mescalero ID cards. And then, consistent with the muddled logic of the Claims Commission's ruling, but inconsistent with anything approaching logic, half of those $10 million actually went to the Mescalero tribe itself. Concluding a podcast season with the fact that Native Americans got screwed is neither novel nor even interesting these days. And frankly, I'm tired of watching people use their moral indignation at the past to hide from the really uncomfortable challenges that the story of the Lipanes actually ought to pose to us in our comfortable present. Like, for example, that you too might sanction some pretty terrible things against people like the Lipanes if you had to wonder whether every bird call or coyote yip that you heard on your backpacking trip was actually coming from a bird or a coyote, or whether it was actually coming from the pissed-off band of Lipanes sneaking up on you and entirely unsympathetic to how sympathetic you were to the fact that you were on their land. Or that some of the most appalling policies toward Native Americans for example, reducing Indian populations into missions or kidnapping Native children and shipping them off to boarding schools were actually perpetrated by the bleeding-heart, land-acknowledging do-gooders of their day who genuinely thought that they were helping Native Americans by erasing their identity. Or that, statistically speaking, most of us probably would have done the same things that even the most unrelatable historical villains in this story did if we'd been cast back into their shoes at their moment in time. No, when it comes to studying Native American histories like the Lipanes, I'm inclined to say that the better conclusion is to abandon any delusion that the so-called arc of the moral universe bends toward justice. It's a sweet American ideal, but it's just objectively false when it comes to the Native American experience, especially the Lipan Apache one. And in a perverse way, holding on to the idea of history as progress I think actually makes it easier to reconcile ourselves to the removal and extermination of native peoples. As in, 
It must have all been part of the moral universe's arc toward justice, after all. There just must have been something about Native America that was a little incompatible with justice, maybe. The Lipan Apaches tell us how naive that is. Justice doesn't move the world. There's only the whirlwind. A whirlwind that everywhere and always expands upon itself, fueled by the chaos it creates, indifferent to the people it obliterates, and justifying its every act by the certainty that if it stops, it will perish. History, then, is what we make of the wreckage that the whirlwind leaves behind. Most of what we see of Native American life, even in the historic period, is a window into a post-apocalyptic world ravaged by disease and conquest and slaving. And so much of what we see in the Texas historical record are Native American identities in flux, refugee remnants of Mesoamerican traditions merging with refugee remnants of Mississippian traditions, mashed together by the great mounted plains cultures sweeping into the state, and then jumbled by the whirlwind of European conquest and the African slave trade and everything else. And the result, what we see in Texas, is ethnogenesis, the birth of new peoples into a world of old peoples, just like the emergence of the first Apaches from the Guadalupe Mountains into a world already populated, but by no means complete. John Graves in Goodbye to a River articulates this beautifully. Quote, Neither a land nor a people ever starts over clean. Country is compact of all its past disasters and strokes of luck, of food and drought, of the caprices of glaciers and sea winds, of misuse and disuse and greed and ignorance and wisdom. And though you may doze away the cedar and coax back blue stem and mesquite grass and side oats grandma, you're not going to manhandle it into anything entirely new. It's limited by what it has been, by what's happened to it. And a people, until that time when it's uprooted and scattered and so mixed with other peoples that it has in fact perished, is much the same in this as land. It inherits. Its progenitors stand behind its elbow, and not only the sober gentle ones. Quote. The whole thing just pisses you off, though, doesn't it? It pisses you off because you know that every progenitor behind every elbow has a story that they're trying to tell. But the stories are so varied, so inconsistent, that you don't know how to weave them together. And yet stories themselves are evidence. Even if we can't prove the content of the stories, their existence and their quantity are proof of something. And once you start looking for them, the quantity of Lipan Apache stories that Texans today are still carrying around is absolutely overwhelming. And there's enough of them coming out of the shadows now that they're beginning to coalesce into something approaching a coherent whole. Particularly when they remember things that they weren't supposed to know like the story of Captain Ramon Castro's children disappearing after the El Remolino massacre, only to have a researcher recently find them in the records of the Carlisle Boarding School in Pennsylvania. The stories of deer dances passed down through family gatherings that echo the stories of the antlered deer god bringing peyote in the rock art of the Lower Pecos. In the uncanny way that certain highly sought-after families of ranch hands in Coahuila seem to be able to talk to horses, and yet the hands themselves as standoffish and secretive and as seemingly unknowable as the horses they were hired to break. I'll close with the story that a Lipan friend told me one day over lunch at Garcia's in San Antonio. Visiting his grandmother one day back in the 60s, she suddenly came out of a back room wearing a funny-looking, obviously handmade dress. She signaled to him and they walked together outside the house. 
There, she took off the dress and burned it. Promise me you'll never tell anyone you've seen a dress like this, she said. My friend was confused, and his grandmother could tell. And so she told him a story about her eight-year-old grandmother at a camp in a beautiful, well-watered canyon in northern Mexico. El Remolino, she called it. But there were screams everywhere, and gunshots and shouts and flames. And now her grandmother's hiding in a shallow hole, trying to keep her 18-month-old little brother from crying. She pulls some dead sagebrush over the hole, but her brother doesn't understand. He's scared. He screams out. A soldier comes over and starts thrusting his saber into the hole. Her little brother is impaled. He cries once more, and then never again. The soldier walks away. The eight-year-old girl tries not to even breathe. The soldier comes back. He stabs twice more, slicing her hand open, but she doesn't make a sound. And the soldier leaves. What does that story make you feel? My friend's grandmother asked him, getting up into his face and making him feel naked and afraid. Angry, he says to her. Angry at the soldier, he says. No, she says to him. This story isn't about the soldier. It's about your great-great-grandmother. Thank you for listening to this season of A New History of Old Texas. One last comment. My friend, Gary Perez, whose parents were Lipan Apaches, has spent years interpreting events in native Texans' history through the movements of the heavens and the alignment of the planets. He marks the history of both the Comanches and the Lipanes by a 280-year cycle tied to the orbit of Venus. And he notes that the Lipan cycle began in 1745, when the Lipan Apaches emerged and tied their identity and their future to the settler societies around them. It was a momentous decision that led to the great peace of 1749, four sacred years later, and everything else that we've talked about. Well, 2025 marks the end of that 280-year cycle. Will 2025 bring about some great new Lipan apocalypse? Ta'akuo chekau nete, as the Lipanes would have said, which means, that's all I'll tell you. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margo Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com. <laughs>